You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. I I can die a happy man never having lived in the White House, but what I don't want to do is I don't want to take people's time, effort and commitment without there being a clear shot that I could be the nominee. Joe Biden has not yet said whether or not he'll run for president next year, but should he and America's voters take into account the fact that the election will be 17 days before his 78th birthday? My guests, Venetia Rainey, Malkin Charchoglian and Ed Stocker will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including New York City's begging letter to Amazon, London's newest university, which hopes to interact with the real world, and has the greeting Dear Sir been overhauled by the Times? That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle's Venetia Rainey, Ed Stocker and Melkin Charchoglian. Welcome all. And we are going to start by elaborating on a conversation which occurred on the briefing on Monocle 24 earlier today. Lance Price, former Director of Communications for Tony Blair and a regular Monocle 24 guest, posited that there was a general hunger for national leaders longer of tooth and greyer of hair. 20 years ago, he said it was very different. Clinton and Blair have gone and there aren't many fresh-faced leaders left. I think that people became quite weary about it. I think we've reached an age where people want their politicians to look older. People want stability and authority in an age of uncertainty, and they think that comes with an older leader. Um, Venetia, is that true, do you think? Because it struck me, with all due respect to Lance, that when you look at some of the older politicians who are prominent at the moment, and you could cite President Donald Trump, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the opposition in the UK, um, they're not all about stability, despite their advancing years. No, exactly. I don't think people are looking for um, people who are older. I think they want fresh perspectives. And if that comes with someone who's older or younger, I don't think people mind so much. I think people want someone who's going to turn things upside down a bit. I think that's what people were voting for when they voted for Corbyn, when they were voting for Trump. People want the status quo to be disrupted. We're unhappy with how it's going at the moment. And we want someone who's going to bring some new ideas to the table. Um, Melkin, are you instinctively swayed as a voter one way or the other by the age or lack thereof of a given politician? Yes, I think so. And actually, I remember when Chukumun announced that he wouldn't be uh, standing for the leadership of the Labour Party, I was very disappointed because it seemed like a very opportune moment for a young person to come in and, and shake things up in uh, in a party that hadn't had a young face in a long time. Um, but I think also it comes down to the fact that it's very difficult in the modern age for young politicians uh, to raise the sort of support and money necessary to run you know an enormous campaign you can't just take an ad out now and hit the road you have to have a lot of cash behind you and that normally comes with age gravitas and influence um, Ed, we, we heard uh, in the top of the show there from Joe Biden, a former vice president who's not yet decided what he's doing next year. Uh, the, the Constitution of the United States, of course, actually has a minimum age requirement for people seeking the office of president. They must be at least 35. Uh, he will, as I said, be 78 or thereabouts at the time of the next election. Should there be an upper age limit? 
Well, I don't know. I think that would be a little bit ageist, don't you, Andrew? Well, it's all, it's, is it not ageist to say that people under 35 well, can't be president? But I don't think so. Look, if people want to vote a- for him... It's ageist to say people I under mean, 18 can't look, vote. Look, Joe Biden would have to get through what is going to be a, a very full mm. and competitive primary round. Uh, so, you know, we've got a long way to go, even if he does choose to run. But I think, you know, we're going to see a whole range of ages uh, in that pack. Julian Castro, for example, I think is 44. Cory Booker's not much older. So there are some younger uh, faces, not not in their 30s perhaps, but there are some younger faces amongst that pack of Democratic hopefuls in that primary. Uh, Venetia, do you think the, the perspectives of individual voters change? Um, I, I know mine does somewhat when you kind of consider the, the age of various candidates relative to your own. The idea that you would put somebody younger and therefore even more idiotic and disorganised than myself in charge of an entire country um, terrifies me. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 probably true. I do find myself understanding what an older candidate might bring to the process more than when I was younger and I think I wanted someone to just represent me and what my generation was thinking. So yeah, I think there's probably something to that. Um, Mel, can I, I want to reiterate the or look a bit more at something Ed was talking about there, making the point that you know Joe Biden and people of his age are setting themselves up for an extraordinarily physically punishing endurance test. Um, does that actually, I guess, take some of the concern out of electing an older candidate, that if they can survive a presidential campaign or the equivalent, then they're probably physically up to it? Well, I don't know. I think surviving the campaign and surviving the presidency are two completely different things. I mean, there's there are famous photos of Obama having you know, him after four four years and then eight years, that the change is incredibly significant. And I, I remember when Trump was elected, there were concerns that he was too old and physically not fit enough to be able to handle that office. In, in fairness, those concerns, while legitimate, <laughs> were, were way down the list of concerns where Trump was concerned. Exactly. So with Biden, they'll be right the way up because he's actually a fairly clean candidate. <laughs> I just wanted to add one point. You know, we talk about a minimum limit and whether we should impose a higher one. But I guess the point is, you know, you can argue that older candidates, okay, we can talk about how physically able they are, but they also have a whole wealth of experience that someone who's just starting their political life doesn't have. So for all the talk of youth, and it is a very valid point, there is also something to be said for someone who has a lot of experience in a role, although in the case of Donald Trump, age doesn't equal experience. Well, it, it, it equals experience of a sort. In, in his case, it's debatable whether or not it equaled uh, wisdom. Um, just to go back finally to where we came in on this, Venetia, do you think there actually is a general trend uh, of people wanting older leaders? Because there's also plenty of uh, exceptions that would seem to, uh, well, if not prove that rule, then, then, then kind of disprove it. In fact, there's the sort of Emmanuel Macron in France, there's the barely in long trail as leader of Austria, for example. I mean, it's... it's, it's Why it, no? it, 35? Well, indeed so. It's it's not really a makeable case, is it? No, I, d- I, don't, <laughs> I don't think that stands up to much scrutiny. I, you know, I think people just want... It's different in every country, isn't it? I sort of speak for the UK best, but in a two-party system, effectively, we're kind of lumped with basically what we get. There aren't that many options <laughs> that get presented to us. So it's not like we get to pick someone from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s and think, who's really going to represent us? Um, so I think we're sort of picking out of, out of out of a limited range of options. And sometimes age isn't the most important factor, I don't think. Well, on that cheery thought, uh, let's look now at 
New York City and an intriguing manoeuvre performed by New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo, aged 61. Last month, you may recall, Amazon announced that it was pulling the plug on a projected new corporate campus that it intended to build in Queens. The decision followed months of protest from locals and was widely hailed as a triumph of people power over the remorseless corporate juggernaut and so forth. However, Governor Cuomo was not among those celebrating Amazon's removal of its bat and ball and is now wrangling local businesses, politicians and community leaders behind an effort to get Amazon to change its mind. Um, Ed, what was or perhaps even is the project actually going to involve? What a mess this whole thing is, really. Isn't it's a it? fabulous First mess. It's amazing. I mean, I'd, I failed to understand how Amazon can't have thought it was going to get a bit of backlash in New York City. And secondly, how, uh, you know, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, and uh, the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, thought they could sort of push this through and not mention the fact that people may want to be unionized, which is kind of the main reason this whole thing has blown up. It just seems bizarre to me. Um, this Operation Rescue Mission seems like a bit late, a bit a bit too little, too late. Uh, you know, the advert that was taken out in the New York Times today said, you know, it talked about the public debate being rough and not very welcoming. Poor Amazon. Um, and, and uh, you know... <laughs> they, they, they don't make a convincing plucky underdog, Amazon, do they? But at this point? They, they kind of go for a joke. They also said, we consider it part of the New York charm, exclamation mark. Uh, as if, you know, that's just the rough and ready nature of New Yorkers. Don't take us too seriously. But I do think it would be a little bit odd at this stage, having sort of severed ties, you know, deciding to walk away sort of, uh, uh, you know, because uh, New York hasn't been nice enough to them for this uh, to convince them that they're suddenly going to come back. That would be even too much of an added mess to what is already a mess. So I think I think this is an attempt to salvage something with a whole list of signees, uh, but it seems like a waste of advertising money, really, to pay the New York Times to place this full-page ad. I think, personally, that Amazon is going to walk away to places like... Uh, uh, Arlington in in the northern part of Virginia that has got the other um, HQ, the second HQ that has welcomed Amazon with open arms. Uh, Melkin, as as Ed correctly says, uh, Amazon did receive what I think you could call a a New York welcome, the proverbial Bronx cheer, uh, in fact. But is, is it nevertheless fair enough uh, of Andrew Cuomo to try and turn this around? Because it would have represented considerable investment, thousands of jobs, uh, and polls do suggest that between, depending on which part of New York you ask, 56 to 58 percent of New Yorkers were actually in favour. Well, I'm very, very uh, weary of these polls. I think the issue is that Amazon is a, you know, company with a with a value of the size of an entire country. So it's not beyond the realms of imagination to think of, you know, them stepping into Long Island, Queens, and turning this area into effectively a one-town industry. And America has a long history of one-towns, you know, being forced into the vassalship of, say, Ford or GM. And then suddenly when that company goes, all work and economy in the town goes with it. Um, so I think it's more a case of we don't want to be beholden to this giant. And that's perfectly understandable. Also, that New York would have to give something like $2.5 billion worth of uh, monetary incentives to Amazon as part of the contract. That's a huge amount of money, and it's understandable that residents don't think it's worthwhile. On that thought, uh, Venetia, uh, the, the $2.5 billion sweetener, is this by Andrew Cuomo and others, I guess, kind of naive or ill-thought politicking in that respect? Because this is kind of an encouragement to Amazon to just run up the tab, isn't it? Say, like, you know, okay, well, maybe we'll think about it, but here's our new list of things we want. (laughs) 
Yeah, I suppose it is. And I just think, you know, th there were some really valid points made about Amazon <clears throat> coming into this neighbourhood and displacing the working class and what will happen in terms of the gentrification of the neighbourhood. And, you know, I, I think we need to think really carefully about the balance between the jobs that are created and the actual effect on the neighbourhood, you know. These, these operations become huge and can be overwhelming, like Mel Concert for, for a local economy. And was that the argument against it from the people who didn't like the idea? Was this straightforward what is known here in the UK as NIMBYism, an acronym standing for Not In My Backyard? Is that what it was? Um, yeah, I mean, a little bit. I mean, uh, Long Island City is not, um, it's actually been changing quite a lot. It's one of those areas of New York that's already been gentrifying quite a lot in the last few years. But I think there is a fear that, you know, uh, look, tech jobs are often, not exclusively, but are often high paying. So they're going to attract a certain type of employee and not necessarily help people that most need it in that area. So yes, uh, a large reason for uh, the objection is that they felt that it was almost like a fast track gentrification the fact that you know a, a, a company like amazon going into that area will just speed up all those things push up prices etc etc and despite the fact that it has been gentrifying quite a lot in the last few years there is also a feeling that there are certain things that long island city is lacking like decent transport links and schooling and that Amazon and I guess the consortium of the city and the governor hadn't done enough to address those issues in what they deemed as a sort of capitulation to big business. Just a final quick thought on this one, Ed. When you talk about people complaining about gentrification, is that complaint the same in New York as it is in almost every other place in the world I can think of, which is that the people who are complaining about gentrification are usually themselves gentrifiers. They're just the slightly previous wave of gentrifiers who thought they were here first when it was cool and now everyone else has followed them. It's like it's the I, I liked this band when they were on sub pop argument i mean I, I don't think that's exclusively true i think they may not possibly they may not necessarily use the word gentrification because the term in itself is kind of loaded but i, I only know from i have a personal experience of being in sunset park which is another neighborhood uh, not in queens but in brooklyn that's been gentrifying very quickly and i've spoken to people there um about the changes going, uh, you know, that are taking place there. Uh, and they do complain about the fact that rent, rental prices for shops and uh, for houses have gone up sharply. So those people who are affected by prices going up are definitely going to have a problem with that. Now, next year, assuming Brexit has not reduced Britain to a Hobbesian dystopia and widespread recourse to cannibalism, the ribbon will be cut on the country's first new university for 40 years. The London Interdisciplinary School, catchy, will offer just one degree, a Bachelor of Arts and Sciences taught in a project-based fashion, it says here, encouraged to prompt thinking capable of solving complex real-world problems. It seems a clear enough revolt against the population notion of university as an unhelpful three-year holiday in an ivory tower. Um, Melkin, first of all, basically does this sound like a good idea to you? I think the principle is fantastic. As in you, it sort of uh, echoes the apprenticeship scheme that the government uh, has been encouraging over the last few years. You get people in and you give them very practical, you put their skills to practical use straight away. The only issue is that if ever, all these people from all, you know, and people think very differently at the age of 18, not all people know what they want to do or how they want to apply their skills. If you're banding them all together into this one degree and then saying, right, let's all solve this enormous number of problems, how's that going to work? The great thing about university is that you're allowed to sort of figure out 
what you want to do and where your skills lie. I had first year of university, I got to kind of pick and choose and do lots of smaller subjects before focusing on that very practical and useful subject that is uh, Greek and Latin poetry. And now I'm solving global problems. <laughs> but without that first year of figuring myself out, I'd be nowhere. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm actually quite sympathetic uh, to universities in the face of the ridicule on that front. Now, I'll put this to you, Venetia, because people do say that it's, it's basically three years of young people uh, sitting around doing nothing useful and just thinking about stuff to which... And I speak as somebody who didn't get quite through the entire three years of doing that. I, I speak as that select coterie of people who've dropped out of university twice twice um, in my particular case the University of Sydney and I'm sure the fault was mine not its but is, isn't that actually kind of the point is it isn't it a good thing that you know between the ages of 18 21 or thereabouts people are just encouraged or permitted to just yeah have a bit of a think about stuff figure out what you're good at Yes, definitely. Um, but I think people can continue to do that while they're doing this more perhaps real world multidisciplinary degree. Um, there's no reason they can't keep going to bars and doing extracurricular activities and, you know, not turning in their coursework for the whole of their first year. <laughs> you know, It wasn't well, just me then. Yeah, <laughs> definitely like not. Going to bars is the first thing. That's a very important part of the university experience. Oh, yeah. I spent most of my university experience, the stuff that I think I actually got out of it, working on the student newspaper. And that's why I'm in journalism now. Um, and I did, I studied <laughs> medieval English literature and history. Not very applicable, I think we can all, we can all see. Um, but it is a time, you're right, to discover other things. But I think this degree sounds like a really good extra option. It's not for everyone to choose just one subject. And I did have to choose at the age of, I think, 16, 17. I just picked something out of a hat, really. I just picked what I was good at at school. And you don't understand what's interesting in terms of a career or what might be interesting to do for the rest of your working life at school. I don't think you're given proper career advice. So I think this sounds like a good extra option. Ed, are you going to out yourself at this point as being the only person at this table actually remotely qualified to do the job they do? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> is, that the, is that the only question? Exactly. No, we're, I'm just saying we, 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 are, we, are, we are learning a lot here about the, po- potentially, disjo- the potentially disjointed <laughs> relationship between what one studies at university and what one ends up actually doing. But it is one degree, but it's not one subject. It, it, I think it encompasses the art, science, design. It's, 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 it's multidisciplinary. I can't, is that a word I can even pronounce? Anyway, I think I, you I follow thought, me. I, I thought for a Friday uh, <laughs> evening that was a very good stab at thank multi-dis- you very much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, polymathic problem solving, apparently, whatever that means. But I think I think it's interesting. I wouldn't say it's exactly solving real-world problems in the sense that it's not teaching you how to be a plumber, how to fix that leak in your house. It's more like we want to save the world. Here's something we're going to try and tackle and work out a solution for. But one so, of the issues they've mentioned is like trying to solve of knife crime like that's a really interesting idea to set university students on of course of course but all i'm saying is it's not it's not a day-to-day issue you come it's trying to it's a greater it's it's a greater good issue i'm talking about so it's for i think it's for a certain type of person from a certain segment of the world who wants to do that sort of thing do you know what what i'm saying do you know what this sounds like sounds like x-men Let's gather all these geniuses into this, like, one college and get them at the age of 18 to solve global problems. I mean, it's a big onus on the shoulders of an 18-year-old. Great. All the people who are completely blue finally have somewhere to study. <laughs> I, I think they just want to recruit for MI6 Sorry, are, 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 you, are you people now making vaguely contemporary pop culture references? Because I'm, I, I am... No, a, I'm don't a, know her name. Don't know what she's called. You're lost with X-Men, really. Would, would Men in Black be better for you? 
I think I saw that. Harry all... Potter? No, no. I, I think we are, we are possibly drifting uh, somewhat from the point and certainly revealing the incompleteness of my own education in certain respects. But it, it, it does prompt, I, I guess, the question. I'll ask uh, you first, Venetia. Um, as somebody who was, I mean, I wasn't at university, as we've learned long enough to actually decide what I wish had been different about my university experience. But it, is there anything in this idea that sounds like something you wish you had had access to while you were studying medieval English? Absolutely. And I would have history. loved to have done this. And history, thank you. I did the International Baccalaureate at sixth form, and that allowed me to do six subjects at once, plus some other stuff. I just couldn't choose. I didn't want to have to choose. And even when I went for my degree, I picked a joint honours. I would, I would 100% sign up for this degree if it was offered to me again. Ed, is there something here that sounds like it would have appealed to you? when You, you still haven't told us what you studied. Yeah, I, st- I did, us, history, I did history as well. Where? Medieval history? And French, joint honours. Where did you study, Ed? University of Leeds. Ah. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, I possibly... I mean, I always wanted to ha- uh, study a language, so um, I'm not sure it would necessarily have addressed that. But I think it, it sounds like a, a fascinating degree, to be honest with you. And I think it's really good to ha- have something that is a little bit new. Um, whether it necessarily makes you know exactly what you're going to do when you leave... But it does sound like you may get recruited by some shadowy organisation <laughs> afterwards. So McKinsey maybe you'll be fine. or the Met Police. The choice is yours. It sounds like it's really grooming you for that. Um, Malkin, uh, speaking as somebody who finished university, I'm guessing roughly this time last week, is, 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 is d- d- does this sound like it, it would have revolutionised your extremely recent student days? No, because I really enjoyed being bogged down in the academia of my subject. But I, I do agree. Greek rank. poetry, in case anyone forgot. And exactly. On the beach, Lucretius. No, I, it wouldn't have struck the note with me, but I, th- I think it's it's I think it's very much in the right direction because I think that university is not for everyone, and at the moment, a lot of universities are run like corporations, and they simply want kids to come in, study a subject that they don't need to study, just so they they can get their money. It's far better to have apprenticeships and practical directions, so you you know if you want to do something, you can then get those skills, go into work, rather than waste your time. And one more very quick note. Ed said that almost derogatorily that it was like grooming people for employers. But I think a lot of people get out of university with like whatever degree and like, oh, who the hell is going to employ me? I think that's ri- that university should help you transition into that. Well, finally tonight uh, to Oxfordshire, where it has all been kicking off in the letters pages and indeed about the letters pages of the Henley Standard, venerable local newspaper of Henley-on-Thames, I think making its first ever appearance on Midori House as a subject. A local troublemaker sent a letter to the editor taking issue with the paper's maintenance of the tradition of prefacing letters with the greeting, Sir. The editor, Simon Bradshaw, though noting that as he is male, it seemed fair enough to him, has announced that the formality will be dispensed with, which has in turn prompted an uproar, well, 11 letters, from people who needed something new to whine about now they've got the Brexit they obviously wanted. Um, Venetia, I'll ask you first, where are we in general on this, uh, (laughs) sir, as a greeting? Is it just outdated and wrong and, and, and a hideous relic of a mercifully bygone era, or is it just a polite way of addressing someone you don't know? Well, you can greet me as sir, I wouldn't be offended. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds very respectful. No, I I mean... Well, it's it's. I don't want to say PC gone mad, but I've kind of just said it. But I, I don't know. I think I think it's fine. Have you I written think one of these eleven letters? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's part of a sort of grand newspaper tradition, and I totally get that some people are complaining about it. But it certainly doesn't bother me on those pages. It feels, yeah, it is slightly archaic. But those letters pages are kind of archaic. It's I I like it personally.
Because I, I don't know, I, I, I see what the guy is saying, Simon Bradshaw, that is, that he's male, they are letters in theory to him, so dear sir is fair enough, and presumably if the editor of the Henley Standard was a woman, you could change it to dear madam. But I also see the other argument, uh, Melkin, which is the idea, and it's a, it's a perfectly reasonable complaint, that there is still a general assumption that, that male is the default setting. Yes, I, I don't think there's anything incredibly profound. Like there are far more important questions when it comes to sexism and gender equality. But I think the editor's decision to get rid of it is also absolutely fine, as is the complainer's letter. As in, he's got rid of it. That's okay. It's very fortunate that he was a man. But if if he were a woman, he could easily, or she could have easily, have taken offence. I might have taken offence at being addressed as madam had someone written into me at Midori House. Does anyone write to me? No, madame they don't. The, 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 madame Melcon. I run the, a brothel in Chinatown. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to now be braced for a bunch of emails from our wittier listeners addressing you as as dear madam. I just don't think it's a huge question. It's absolutely fine. Um, I think it's fine as long as you're very sensitive to like you were saying. Like if you're addressing a man, sir, if you're addressing a, a female editor, madam. I also believe that he originally decided to get rid of Sir, and then following the outcry, he did an about turn as reintroduced it. Has he? I, I can't keep up. It really is all kicking off in no Henley on Thames, isn't we it? We need a live blog. We, 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 do, we need somebody there, Melkin. <laughs> right, I'll get the, the, the 1653 from Paddington. <laughs> Home County's reporter, there you go. Uh, is it possible, and this, this is an idea which has literally just occurred to me, Venetia, so I'm going to admit right now this may hold no water whatsoever, that what's actually going on here is that this is not an argument uh, about sexist forms of address. It's an argument about formality, and that is something which is increasingly uh, disappearing. I actually still quite like it on the occasions if I get an email from somebody I don't actually know who addresses their, their email, Dear Mister, rather than just going, Hey Andrew, from somebody I don't know. Dear Mister? Well, with my surname at the end of it. You know, oh, I obviously. thought it was just M-I-S-T-E-R. No. Dear Mister. Dear Hemula. Yeah, th- 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 those, th- those tend to come from Nigerian email addresses and, and, and be interested in my, my sort code. But, but is that what's going on here? There, there's people desiring a return to formality. Yeah, I think probably. And that sort of formality, I kind of like Malcolm was saying, that formality is part of a sort of time when it was assumed that the editor of these letter pages would be male and that the correspondence would probably also be between more men, just men talking about important stuff and the women sitting at home and pouring them tea. I don't know. I guess it is sort of tapping into that sort of anxiety over... I think it's quite interesting also that the, the, the publications that have chosen to keep it tend to be the more traditional ones. For example, The Telegraph still has it, The Times has it, The Spectator, Private Eye, but it's been dropped by The Guardian, uh, the FT New Statesman and The Economist. That's a whole separate conversation. That, maybe. that, that is a front line in the culture war you have identified right there, isn't it? That's good research. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had to do it. Uh, Melkin, as, as, as the representation of youth at this table, do you, do you take offence one way or the other if you are addressed by total strangers by your first name? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I, I'm with you. I think formality is slightly lacking uh, today. Like you said, people write and say, hey, how's it going, Malcolm? I've never met you in my life. <laughs> the, but, but also, I don't, want to, I don't want the UK to go down the way of the passive-aggressive sir that you get in America. Sir, 
You're gonna have to you're gonna have to tip me or something along maybe, those lines. Maybe don't do the accent. Yeah, no, no. Well, you get the gist. <laughs> you want to see the world return to sort of hat tipping? I feel a little bit of hat tipping, oh. canes on the street, that sort of stuff. <laughs> you, you, I think you just, you just need canes to... on the street. Malcolm, Malcolm, Malcolm. Just tell Malcolm. No, no. But I think Look, a little Madam bit. Malcolm, <laughs> you put your you put your corset and your bustle on, and we'll talk. All right. A little bit of formality is all I'm asking. We, for. we are out of time. Malcolm now has to put on his top hat and ride his penny farthing to Henley on Thames to bring us the latest. <laughs> Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Venetia Rainey, Ed Stocker and Melkin Charjoglian, thank you for joining us on Midori House. The show was produced by Ben Ryland, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Marvulli. Our studio manager was May Lee Evans. More music next. At 1900, you can get a lesson in making vegan curry with this week's edition of The Menu. The Daily has more on the day's main stories at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Enjoy your weekend. No, they